I'm, I'm too tired from all this attention and so forth to uh, make a comprehensive response <laughs> to all the positive and unfortunately negative uh, remarks that have been made about this topic over the course of the past two days. And so I just want to persuade you uh, just by saying it that uh, you should realize that when all is said and done, justice just is justice. And there's <laughs> too much fuss about all these kind of thingies, you know, little twirly, curly cue twirlies, you know, justice is what we're talking about. Right. Well, I, I, it's been an amazing pair of days for me. It's quite disorienting. Well, to be honest, it's disorienting to be the recipient of so much goodwill. I, of course, am deeply indebted to uh, Adam and Stuart for having conceived this occasion and having brought it to fruition, and also to the members of the Center for the Study of Social Justice, and of course to Chuck Bites and Philosophy and Public Affairs for uh, putting themselves behind this enterprise, and even, I believe, All Souls College gave a little bit of money, no? A tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been enormously gratifying for me these two days, and I knew in advance that, or expected in advance, that certain things, can everybody hear me? Yeah. That certain things would be gratifying. But what I didn't realize, it was, it was how wonderfully satisfying it would be to see the youngsters, as they then were, with whom I had a lot to do in the spring of their philosophical existence, the halting, tripping, anxious youngsters struggling to get a foothold, and to now see them in the high summer <laughs> of their philosophical flourishing, and with a gratifying confidence, extraordinary when, well, and justified confidence in what they have to say. Remember, it, it, it reminds me of uh, that a moving verse in one of the songs of Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. Swiftly flow the days. Seedlings turn overnight to sunflowers. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> Seedlings turn overnight to sunflowers. Blossoming even as we gaze. Although it wasn't quite overnight, but, but it's a fantastic thing. It's wonderful to see that fruition. Well, people have been, as I say, have, have projected a great deal of goodwill on, on me, and I want to demand a little bit more because I'm going to talk about something you might not expect. I'm going to talk about uh, poetry and recite certain poems that have been very important to me in my life. And you could ask why I'm doing this. Actually, when I decided to do it, I didn't ask myself why I was doing it. I just wanted to do it. So I'm not doing it for a Tim Scanlon 
or Joseph Raz type of reason, because those reasons are have the feature that they're good reasons. <laughs> I'm doing it for a Harry Frankfurt reason. <laughs> Harry Frankfurt reason, you do it because you feel like it, you know. I mean, you, know, you feel like giving charity, you do. You feel like obeying justice, you do, etc. So there's no reason. But... Uh, my real introduction to poetry, or anyway to poetry in English, because there was a lot of Yiddish poetry that I learned when I was a little kid, but the, the real introduction to poetry in English came in high school, mostly from a book called Modern Poems for Modern Youth. Although the book was called that, although it was supposed to be doubly modern, both in its content and in its projected audience, it didn't seem modern to me, even in 1956, because it was mostly 19th century stuff. And there were in particular a number of inspirational, would-be inspirational poems which celebrated the ethos of the British Empire, Victorian poems, martial poems. Um, and of course I had a socialist anti-imperial ideology when I was a teenager in high school. And so my brain knew enough to make me shrink from the message of these Victorian martial poems, but my errant heart was drawn forward by their celebration of sacrifice and of virtue in community with others in the service of a noble cause. And the most stirring of these poems, which some of you may know, was called uh, Vitae Lampada, means the torch of life, by Sir Henry Newbolt, who was born in 1862 and died in 1938. Vitae Lampada is about a schoolboy cricketer who grows up to fight in Africa. There, in the panic of battle, the boy is stirred by heroic action, sorry, stirred to heroic action, by memories of his school days. He remembers how his, quote, cricket captain's hand on his shoulder smote, play up, play up, and play the game. And here's the poem. There's a breathless hush in the close tonight, ten to make and the match to win, a bumping pitch and a blinding light, an hour to play and the last man in. And it's not for the sake of a ribboned coat or the selfish hope of a season's fame, but his captain's hand on his shoulder smote, play up, play up, and play the game. And now we go to Africa where the sand of the desert is sodden red, red with the wreck of a square that broke, the gatlings jammed and the colonel dead and the regiment blind with dust and smoke. The river of death has brimmed his banks and England's far, an honor a name, but the voice of a schoolboy rallies the ranks, play up, play up and play the game. This is the word that year by year, while in her place, the school is set. Every one of her sons must hear, and none that hears it dare forget. This they all, with a joyful mind, bear through life like a torch in flame, and fa falling, fling to the host behind. Play up, play up, and play the game. Newbold also wrote a perhaps even more horrible poem. <laughs> that is, 
horrible in its ideology, <laughs> which is called Clifton Chapel. Clifton being the public school whose name is Clifton. <laughs> but when you say that in fuck <laughs> So here is the Clifton Chapel poem. This is the chapel. Here, my son, your father thought the thoughts of youth. You see, you only get into Clifton if you, uh, if your father was in, which would make Andrew refute it by saying, well, what, how do you get, how does it get started, you know? But anyway, never mind. Uh, this is the chapel. Here, my son, your father thought, thought the thoughts of youth and heard the words that one by one the touch of life has turned to truth. Here in a day that is not far, you too may speak with noble ghosts of manhood and the vows of war you made before the Lord of hosts. And here are the vows of war. What could be more noble? To set the cause above renown, to love the game beyond the prize, to honor while you strike him down the foe that comes with fearless eyes, to count the life of battle good and dear the land that gave you birth, and dearer yet the brotherhood that binds the brave of all the earth. Note the fascist elitism, the elitism that binds the brave of all the earth and the implicit contempt for ordinary humanity. Many of you will know that uh, Wellington said, or is said to have said, after he won the Battle of Waterloo, he said, the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. And according to the story, someone then said to Wellington, well, that accounts for the officers, but what about the men? And he replied, they, sir, were the scum of England. I don't know why I'm telling you these things, but I'm, maybe I'm exorcising my, uh, my, my uh, erstwhile commitment to these uh, poems. Uh, the first poem, Vitae Lampada, was well received both critically and publicly at the time. And Newbolt's work even underwent a revival at the outbreak of the First World War when imperialist optimism was high. But as gloom set in, Newbolt's verse suffered in popularity. And he himself came to dislike Vitae Lampada. During a 1923 speaking tour of Canada, he was constantly called upon to recite the poem. And he complained, he said, it's a kind of Frankenstein's monster that I created 30 years ago. And so the poem retained its popularity in Canada long after it fell out of favor in Britain. And that will, helps to explain the surprise that I experienced in 1961 when I came up to New College here in Oxford and I discovered that these public school poems were not known to the public school boys. They were not known to the Etonians or to the Wickhamists, or the Carthusians, or the Stoics, and only known to a handful of the Herovians. <laughs> the bourgeoisie had conquered the martial aristocracy and had taken over the public schools. Well, some years ago, I was belatedly puzzled why someone of progressive upbringing an enduring progressive commitment, that is, me, should have loved those poems so much. Shouldn't those poems 
in their horrid imperial martialness, the alien to every little progressive Jewish boy and to every little progressive Jewish man. And then I realized that in the communist movement in which I was raised, we had similar poems, or rather songs, songs that were similar but which celebrated a different empire. Not now the British Empire, but the communist empire, the empire of communism, the empire of equality. And some of our stuff was pretty martial. Here are some excerpts from something which is called the Song of the World Federation of Democratic Youth. <laughs> first, the opening lines of the first verse. <clears throat> now, th this song used to get sung at conferences, international conferences, where everybody held hands with one another, crossing their arms rather than their fingers, which is what they should have crossed, but that's what they did, and they <laughs> held on to one another. And it began, One great vision unites us, Though remote be the lands of our birth, Foes may threaten to smite us, Still we live to bring peace to the earth. That's the beginning of the first verse. And the second verse in Fool goes like this. We remember the battle And the heroes that fell on the field. Sacred blood running crimson, Our invincible friendship was sealed. Still the forces of evil Lead the world to upheaval. Down with their lying and useless dying. <laughs> Live for a better world. There was another one I wasn't intending to mention. It was called uh, Where for Peace. And it had this extraordinary segue from verse to chorus, which went like this. Uh, it, well, the, the, the verse ended, Fell the vicious foe, leave him lying low, never more to rise. We're for peace. <laughs> It's incredible, incredible. And the, the final verse, the final verse of, uh, the, of uh, the Song of the World Federation of Democratic Youth. Uh, well, I thought it expressed a certain Stalinist elitism again, so it was, there was the brave of all the earth, but now constituted as such, not by their defense of the British Empire, but by their devotion to communism. But my friend Arnold Zuboff, who has criticized me on many an occasion, doubts that this is really as elitist as I thought it was, but here it comes and you can decide for yourselves. In fact, you could, you know, have a little conference on <laughs> this extraordinary final verse. Solemnly our young voices take the vow to be true to the cause. We are proud of our choices. We are serving humanity's laws. They who cherish the vision make the final decision. Struggle for justice, peace, and goodwill for peoples throughout the world. Well, with reluctance, I have to repudiate all those poems. But there are two poems of Victorian vintage that I would not re repudiate and with which I would like to end this presentation. The first, which I hope some of you know, is by Arthur Hugh Clough. He was the person who said, Thou must not kill, but needs not strive officiously to keep alive, which was an ironic comment 
on lack of compassion towards starving and dying people. Uh, and he wrote this great poem called Say Not the Struggle Not Availeth, which is a great poem to recite to yourself when things are difficult. And it goes like this. Say not, the struggle not availeth, the labor and the wounds are vain, the enemy faints not, nor faileth, and as things have been, they remain. If hopes were dupes, fears may be liars. It may be in yon smoke concealed, your comrades chase e'en now the flyers, and but for you possess the field. For while the tired waves, vainly breaking, seem here no painful inch to gain, far back, through creeks and inlets making, come silent, flooding in the main. And there's one more verse, which was recited by Winston Churchill, this final verse, uh, in the speech in which he expressed his joy that in the wake of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the United States had entered the Second World War. Now, I'm not very good at imitating Winston Churchill, but that's no reason not to try. <laughs> and so he said, And not by eastern windows only, there when daylight comes, comes in the light. In front, the sun climbs slow, how slowly. But westward, look, the land is bright. The final uh, poem that I want to quote part of, because it's too long to quote all of it, is the poem Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. It's a poem about old age, the age on whose threshold I find myself, and where, so it happens, I'm perfectly content to be. I don't mind being old. I've had so much richness in my life. I don't feel that things have passed very quickly. I feel that tremendous gratitude. And here's what Ulysses, who's now old, and who thinks he can make one final voyage, says to the people he calls my mariners. And although this poem may have uh, an apparently martial or naval motifs, motif in it, I think in this case it's purely metaphorical, unlike the Newbold poems, which are genuinely bloodthirsty. So here's how it goes. There lies the port. Every time I think of that line, there lies the port. I think of dessert in an absolute <laughs> but, but, but that's not what he meant. There lies the port. The vessel puffs her sail. There gloom the dark broad seas. My mariners, souls that have toiled and wrought and thought with me, that ever with a frolic welcome took the thunder and the sunshine and opposed free hearts, free foreheads, you and I are old. Old age hath yet his honor and his toil. Death closes all. But something ere the end, some work of noble note, may yet be done, not unbecoming men, 
that strove with gods. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes. The slow moon climbs. The deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength that which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Now, I've recited that poem to myself maybe once a week for 50 years. And recently, it came over differently to me in retirement. It means a lot to me to be retired, and I'm glad that I'm retired, but I have very different attitudes to things. And the difference of attitude, I, I feel in retirement a certain end of striving. I don't mean I won't do anything from now on, of course not, but it's it's different kind of time. It's a kind of harvest time, rather than pushing forward. I mean, one realization of that is that I want to publish stuff that I've got in my files that I've had for decades that I never tried to publish. And I don't have any appetite for exploring new ideas. And as part of this sort of transformation in my desire structure, um, this poem, I was reciting it to myself, especially the end bit, uh, a few weeks ago. And the last line of the poem just changed. It wasn't that I designed a change in it. I didn't think, wouldn't this be better? Or It just was like a voice in my head. And the final line was very significantly changed, and I'll tell you how. It says now, of course, as I said, to strive to seek to find and not to yield. So let me just repeat. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength, which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and then to yield. And so, ladies and gentlemen, friends, I thank you for your incredible generosity, and I now yield, and I look forward to seeing you this evening, those of you who are able to make the party, and I say goodbye and thank you to those who have to leave. Thank you very much. A final thing. Uh, I don't, I, one of the most, uh, I think the most moving orchestral concerts I ever went to in my life was back in the late 60s or mid-60s. It was Isaac Stern with the London Symphony Orchestra. And uh, 
It was the end anniversary of his first appearance with the London Symphony Orchestra, with Pierre Monteux being the conductor. And so they were going to repeat the, the same program that they'd done 30, 40 years earlier or something like that. No, it couldn't have been that much, maybe 25, right? And Pierre Monteux was going to conduct. And, <laughs> well, two, three weeks before the concert, he died. Pierre Monteux died. And, um, and uh, the concert proceeded in a normal way when, I think it was the encore, Isaac Stern said, before uh, his encore, he said, um, and now, with a lovely Brooklyn accent, and now for Pierre, a simple saraband, and please, no applause. It was wonderful. And then he played it and the tears were streaming down his cheeks. And everybody complied. There was no applause. So thank you for your applause and please don't repeat it. <laughs>